0: Ezekiel chapter 29, Ezekiel 29, verses 1 through 21. It says, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered. To the beast of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food." Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel, when they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you and will cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said the Nile is mine and I made it. Therefore, behold, I'm against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation. From Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Cush, no foot of man shall pass through it, and no foot of beast shall pass through it. It shall be uninhabited forty years. And I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated countries, and her cities shall be a desolation forty years among cities that are laid waste. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries." For thus says the Lord God, at the end of the 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations." And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turn to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth, and despoil it, and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment, for which he labored, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. On that day I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, as you probably can tell, there's a lot here. We're going to try to pull all of this stuff out and get, get unpack this chapter and get into chapter 30 tonight in the time that we have. This prophecy about Egypt in verses 1 through 16 is actually in the year 587 B.C., and it's prior to the ones that we looked at last week. Remember last week we were looking at the prophecy in the three chapters against Tyre? Well those were in the 11th year of Ezekiel's captivity. And Look here, this one's in the 10th year. So actually even though chronologically in our Bible, prior to this we have the prophecy against Tyre, this prophecy God gave Ezekiel prior to the one in Tyre. You understand what I'm saying? So that one was 586 BC that he was given the prophecy against Tyre. This one God gave to him in 587. Now this... The, the final siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar is already underway. It started in 588. This is in 587 that he's getting this prophecy. And then the siege of Jerusalem finishes in 586. Now Ezekiel is told to prophesy against the king of Egypt and all of Egypt as well. The, the king of Egypt at this time that he's prophesying against is Pharaoh Hopra. That's important to that keep this in mind because we're going to look at a couple of Pharaohs tonight. This is Pharaoh Hopra, H-O-P-H-R-A. All right now. And this prophecy is referring, when he talks about the judgment of the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, this prophecy is referring to the defeat of the king of Egypt by the Greeks in Sy- of Cyrene in 570, but mostly about the conquering of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar in 568 to 567 BC. So I know it's tricky for us sometimes because we're used to years adding up. As you go timeline prior to Christ, the years count down. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is attacking Jerusalem from 588 to 586 B.C. This prophecy is in 587 while the siege of Jerusalem is going on. Nebuchadnezzar finishes his siege of Jerusalem in 586. And in 585, he does the siege of Tyre, which we studied last week. And he attacks Tyre for 13 years from 585 B.C. to 573 B.C. All right, he finishes that. And as we're going to touch on a little bit later on, he never fully defeats Tyre. You remember, as we studied last week, even though the coastline cities were demolished, a bunch of the folks and a lot of people of Tyre went out to the fortified island and protected themselves there. And it wasn't until Alexander the Great came that the rest of Tyre was defeated. And that'll be important later on in our study. But when he finishes in 573 B.C., Later on, so many years later, in 567, 568, 567 BC, he comes against Egypt, and as you saw in our prophecy here, God even says he's going to use Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to judge Pharaoh Hopra, the king of Egypt at that time. Now, he also said that when Nebuchadnezzar comes and attacks and defeats Egypt, that Egypt is going to be desolated uh, for how many years? You remember from our reading, 40 from f- for 40 years. So do this math with me in your head. 567 is when Nebuchadnezzar defeats Egypt. The Persians take over in 525. And if you remember, when the Persians took over, the Persians allowed the Jews to go back to their land. You remember that? Under Nebuchadnezzar in captivity, they were in captivity there. But then when the time came that God was done having Babylon be the world power and the Medes and the Persians took over and if you study the book of Daniel you'll see that transition. He's under Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning but near the end of the book of Daniel we've got Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians are in charge. And if you remember it's Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians who allow the Jews to go back to their land and rebuild their temple and rebuild their walls. Well the same thing happens. With the Persians, when they take world control after the Babylonians, they allow the Egyptians to go back into their land. So roughly from 567 until 525 is how many years? Just a little over 40 years. And the prophecy even said that they would be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, laid waste, and they would be scattered amongst all the countries for 40 years. When the 40 years are over, he'll allow them to go back into their land. And as you're going to see later tonight, we'll talk about this some more, uh, they all, The prophecy also said, though, that even though they're back as a nation, they will never be a world power again. And that's important, which we'll get to later on. But that kind of lays the foundation for what we want to go to. Go for it. Go for it. So God was using Nebuchadnezzar and everything like that he was bring judgment on Jerusalem and, and... Tyre and Egypt, yep. Okay. So why did he allow the Persians to come? I know that he already said that he was going to come after Nebuchadnezzar. Yep. The question is if he's using Nebuchadnezzar as and I'm going to give you a short answer because we are actually going to deal with that in our study tonight. Because there's a verse that we just read which deals with that. But the short answer is God has his purposes and his pr- plans for each season and he, allow, he uses nations, but then he judges those nations according to what they've done. And he chooses which nation is going to be in power. And you're going to see that in a lot more, a lot more clear, clarity in just a little bit. So I don't know if that'll hold you off for a little bit. So just hang on for one second and we'll deal with that. Now, I want to take some time, though, to deal with why, according to this prophecy here, Egypt was to be judged. I don't want, I want, don't want you to miss it. Look at verse six and seven, verses six and seven of chapter 29. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. A staff was like a walking stick, and it's something you leaned on for support. But if the staff is made of reed, what is that staff going to do? It's going to break. It's going to bend. It's going to be no support at all. And God says to, to Egypt, because you have been a staff of reed to them, when they reached out their hand to you, you ripped their shoulders out of socket. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. In other words, there were times in the history of Israel when Israel leaned on Egypt for support and Egypt gave way. And I want to walk you through, biblically, some of that history. Go back to Genesis chapter 47. I want you to see that at one time, Egypt was a help. To the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter 47, look at verses 1 through 12. In Genesis chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. It says so. Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, "My father and my brothers, and, and with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan." Now to catch you up to speed, this is after Joseph's already been through his being thrown into the well by his brothers, sold as a slave. He's then went into the dungeon. He's now in par- in power in Egypt, second in command over all of Egypt underneath Pharaoh. And because of the famine, remember he had the dream, they had the, the Pharaoh had the dream of the seven lean fat cows and the seven lean cows, and Daniel interprets it, and they start making the plans. The famine is now going on, all right? So uh, in verse 2, and from among his brothers, Joseph took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, "'We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen.' Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, "'Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock.' Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your, of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 year, years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. So here we see that when the nation of Israel, small as they were at the time, needed some place to get some help, get some support, they went to Egypt when Joseph was there, and Egypt helped them. They were a support to them. And they let them live there, and they even blessed them and gave them the best land for their herds. But it changes. Go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, look at verses 8 through 14. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens... They built for Pharaoh store cities Pithom and Ramses but the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves so here we see Israel turned to Egypt and Egypt for a time gave support But then it wasn't long after that that Egypt changed how they treated Israel and they treated them ruthlessly and they became slaves. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 23. I'm going to introduce you to Pharaoh Nico. 2 Kings chapter 23. Look at verses 28 through 35 says now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah by the way you all remember Josiah was he a good king or a bad king he was a good king Josiah was the one who was a young boy king and they found the book of the law during his kingship and he was broken before God and he had it read to all the people and the people wept and he then destroyed all the Baal altars and the Asherah and he was the one that had the the bones of the priests who had been Worshipping on the high places, burned on their altars, and he was straightening everything out for the Lord. Josiah was a good king. But look at verse 22. Sorry, 29. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo, and brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him, and made him king in his father's place. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold, and Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah the king, in place of Josiah his father. And he changed his name to Jehoiakim. So, and he took Jehoahaz away. And he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh. But he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So here we see Pharaoh Necho comes and meets Josiah, king of Israel. As soon as he sees him, kills him. And not only that, when the people bury Josiah, the people of Israel place one of Josiah's sons in his place as king. And Pharaoh Necho quickly, three months later, says, no, I'm going to pick who your king is. And he took him away from being king and made Jehoiakim become king. But then on top of that, he taxed them with 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold every year that they had to pay to Egypt to tribute and all that. And so here Egypt used to be a help to Israel, but they turned on them. And when they leaned on them for support, Egypt broke. And he was not a help to them. Now, there were other times, though, in the history of between Israel and Egypt that God didn't want Israel to lean on Egypt. He wanted them to lean on him, and some of you might remember some of those stories, but let me just show you a couple quick ones real quick. Go to Isaiah 31. It can't be any more clear than Isaiah 31, verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1. He says, what are those who go down to Egypt for help? And rely on horses and who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You see, what started to happen was even though God used Egypt at the very beginning of the nation of Israel's time when they went there during the famine when Joseph was in power, and it was something God planned to take care of Israel. Over time, Egypt changed and they were no longer a help or support to them. They became a staff of reed to the people of Israel. And then the Egyptians kept attacking them or doing like we saw with Pharaoh Necho and, and making them pay tribute. And on top of that, there were other times that God was sending judgment against Israel. And he wanted them to turn to him in repentance. And instead they would go and try to get help from Egypt to fight against these nations that were coming to judge them. Let me give you another example of that. Go to Ezekiel chapter 17. Remember way back in our study of Ezekiel uh, in chapter 17. Let me remind you of what we saw there. Look at chapter 17 verses 11 through 17. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, say now, to the rebellious house, speaking of Israel. Do you not know these, what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and he made a covenant with him. This is Zedekiah. And made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. The chief men of the land had taken; he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he, this is Zedekiah, rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke... In Babylon, he, this is Zedekiah, shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls are built to cut off many lives. All right, so here we see that when Nebuchadnezzar, sent by God to judge Israel, comes in and he makes Zedekiah king he makes a covenant with Zedekiah that the nation of Israel will be humble and submit to the king of Babylon and they'll get to stay in their land. And God, even through the prophet Jeremiah, had said to them, look, if you just humble yourself and receive the discipline of God that he's doing right now and and not fight against it, but just receive what God's doing and humble yourself, you get to stay in the land if you just humble yourself under king of Babylon. And Zedekiah made an oath by God by the name of the Lord that he would keep that covenant. But then he broke the covenant, he contacted the king of Egypt And said, Come up here and help us. Come up here and help us. And then, because of that, Zedekiah was going to die. But I want to show you what happened when they called Babylon, sorry, the the Egyptians to come help. Go to Jeremiah 37. In Jeremiah 37, we see what happens when he called for the, the Egyptians to come help. Jeremiah 37, verses 1 through 10. It says Zedekiah the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Coniah the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest and the son of Messiah to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord, our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. "'The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, "'and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem "'heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. "'Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, "'Thus says the Lord God of Israel, "'Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, "'Who sent you to me to inquire of me? "'Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you "'is about to return to Egypt.' To its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourself, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent that means the ones who are wounded and the ones who are scared they would rise up and burn this city with fire. Nebuchadnezzar had been sent by God to judge Israel. They had made the covenant that they would humble themselves and submit to Nebuchadnezzar's authority, but they get to stay in the land. Zedekiah broke the covenant, contacted Egypt and said, come help us. Egypt raises up its army, comes up out of Egypt to come help Israel. Babylon is attacking Jerusalem at the time. They hear about it. They go back because they hear the Egyptians are coming. But then all of a sudden, the Egyptians don't make it all the way to Israel and they turn around and go back. They promised help. But they didn't. And then when the Babylonians had found out that they had contacted the Egyptians to come help and they had broken the covenant, the Babylonians came back with force and totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem in judgment. But think of what the Egyptians did. Israel leaned on them for help and they looked like they were going to help and then that staff broke once again. Now, we've been seeing all through that God is dealing with nations according to how they treat Israel. Have you noticed that throughout all this? Every single one of these is all dealing with these Gentile nations according to how they treat Israel. And I just want to say real quick, again, we in the United States need to keep in mind these warnings. Because God is judging all those nations and has judged and will judge those nations according to how they treat Israel. And has the the nation of Israel, ever leaned on the United States? We've been a support for them, a tremendous support. But what will happen to us as a nation if God be who he is? Because he cannot change if we no longer provide that support. Judgment. If we become a reed that breaks when they lean on us. Now, does God want Israel to rely on the United States? As you're about to see, go back to Ezekiel 29. This is why I think God says in Ezekiel 29 that Egypt will never again be the one on whom Israel relies. And that their weakness as a nation will be a reminder to Israel that they sinned in the past by relying on them. Look at chapter 29 verses 15 and 16. It says, It, Egypt, shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they'll never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turn to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And folks, let's be honest. In the history of Egypt, they used to be one of the world powers. But then after Nebuchadnezzar's judgment, or God's judgment through Nebuchadnezzar, and those 40 years that they were laid waste, and then the Persians allowed them to go back in in 525, sorry, 825, what happens? Egypt never becomes a world power, has never been a world power since. They're a nation, but they're a lowly nation. And it's a perpetual reminder to Israel. You leaned on them. You used to call to them for help. I think we have to be real careful. Not only do we need to stay a support to Israel and bless those who, I mean, God said, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Not only do we need to remember that we need to stay a support of Israel, but I think we have to be also careful at the same time that we don't act like we are Israel's only hope. Because if ultimately God wants Israel to realize that he's their only hope, what is something he might do with a nation that Israel leans on? Take it away. Folks, I don't know how specifically it plays out. But I'm hard-pressed to find the United States in the last days. As powerful a nation as we have been on the face of the earth, I don't see us listed. Though there's a place coming up when we get to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 that there's a possibility that we're mentioned there. A small possibility. But let me just tell you, when we get to that, you'll find that even that's not a good thing. Because in that place where the United States, and I'll lay it all out for you, how it may be the United States. When we get to that passage, you're going to find that that place where it mentions possibly us, says that all we do when Gog comes to attack Israel is stand back and let it happen. So no matter what, it doesn't look good for us as a nation. What should we do? We should pray. We should pray and seek God our nation as Daniel confessed his sins and the sins of his people let me also tell you when you pray don't pray like the nation is so bad and we're so good I love the fact that Daniel in chapter 9 when he got the vision from God and Gabriel about the 77's that were decreed for his people in the holy city and the prophecy that is still finally yet to be fulfilled in the tribulation period he said when I was confessing my sins and the sins of my people Israel he wasn't praying that he was better than his nation. He acknowledged his sin before God, and at the same time, he acknowledged the sin of his nation before God. We need to pray with a humble attitude that is not like the one who says, "Oh, well, I'm glad I'm not like that publican or that Pharisee, you know, the Pharisee that prayed looking down on. Don't pray that looking down on the United States. Pray with a humility that says, Lord, by your grace, I would be one of those people having the same attitude, but you've opened my eyes to the truth of who Israel is. And what you're doing. And I pray you open more eyes as well. Pray for our leaders. But don't be surprised that if we continue down this road, because let's be also honest, have we not also as a nation lowly pulled away from helping Israel? If God be God, and he is, and the Bible says he doesn't change, all these things that happen to these nations and will continue to happen will happen to us. It will. Now, in verse 17, though, we see that Ezekiel is given another prophecy about Egypt. 17 years after the prophecy in verses 1 through 16. You see, in verse 1, it's in the 10th year, in the 10th month. Remember, he counts from his captivity in 597 B.C., And here in verse 17 says, in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So this is now 17 years after the first prophecy that we just read in verses 1 through 16. Verses 17 through 21 are 17 years later, around 571-570 B.C. Now, again, like I told you, Nebuchadnezzar's army had besieged Tyre for 13 years from 585 until 573. And so this prophecy is just after his finishing defeating Tyre and, and besieging Tyre before he comes to attack Egypt. Now, but like I touched on last week, you remember, did Nebuchadnezzar totally defeat and conquer Tyre? Alexander the Great did. Even though Tyre was decimated and their out coastline cities were, were laid rubble, a lot of the wealth and the people of Tyre escaped to that fortified island and they were protected there, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't fully defeat them. Back in the days of war in the Bible times, how the armies got paid was not that they showed up and received a paycheck every week. How did they get paid? The spoils of the cities they defeated. You lose the battle, you don't get paid. You win the battle, defeat your enemy, defeat the city. They take everything and take the spoils and they they share them amongst everybody. But with the situation in Tyre, as we read here, go look at what it says in verse 18. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald. Every shoulder was rubbed bare. Remember, it was 13 years they attacked Tyre. Yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth. And to spoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. They have given him the land, I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. And God says, I was paying attention, and I know that even though they decimated Tyre, they didn't fully defeat Tyre, and they never got paid for the battle at Tyre. So I'm gonna give him the wealth of Egypt as their payment for that. By the way, did Egypt have wealth? Does anybody remember looking? And at some of these museums, at some of the stuff that Egypt was famous for, and the things laden with gold, and God said, they didn't get paid for what they did, but I'm paying attention. And I'll make sure that they are paid for what they did, and I'm going to do it through Egypt. By the way, look at verse 20. I don't want you to miss that. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored because they worked for me. This is tied to your question. Wait a minute. Nebuchadnezzar wiped out Jerusalem, then went down and spent 13 years defeating Tyre, and now is going to come in and lay waste to Egypt and carry off its spoils, and the Egyptians are going to be taken away from the Nile and cast out into the nations. Many of them are going to die in the open land. And he's working for God? Let me take you back to Jeremiah chapter 27. It's a passage we've read before, but I want it to be read again. And I pray that over time, this passage starts to really burn into your brain and into your heart. Jeremiah chapter 27, look at verses 4 through 7. God speaking through Jeremiah says, Give them this charge for their master's. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I, by my great power, who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Did you hear what he said? I, have de- I made everything, I control who's in power. I control who's allowed to do what on the world stage. Because everything I'm doing is for a deeper purpose that you may not ever understand, but you need to understand that I'm in control and I get to call the shots. And I choose which nation's in power when and why. And I've chosen to make Nebuchadnezzar my servant. And I've even let the beasts of the field serve him. But when his time is over, he's gonna, his nation's going to become slaves of other nations as well. And I'm going to choose you remember the dreams that God gave Nebuchadnezzar? How he had the head of gold, the statue of the head of gold, and then the chest of silver and the thighs of bronze and so on. In other words, he showed him, look, you're going to be a world power, but then there's going to come another kingdom after you. Then there's going to come another kingdom after them and so on. Ultimately pointing until the Antichrist kingdom. And then ultimately, which we'll get to in Daniel 7 in just a second, when the whole world is handed over to Jesus Christ. So, why? Because God chose to do it. Nebuchadnezzar and his his nation got theirs when it was time. Then he made the Persians, and then after the Persians came the Greeks, and after the Greeks came the Romans. And there's really been no world power and control of the whole globe since that time. But the Bible tells us remember, Daniel was given the same dream of the four beasts, and then there came that fourth beast. And it was terrifying, and he didn't understand it. And of course, it was the picture of what we see in Revelation and the Antichrist kingdom. There's going to be, I believe the Bible teaches clearly, after the rapture of the church, the end of the time of the Gentiles, when God finishes what he promised in Daniel chapter 7, with that last seven-year period, the tribulation period, there's going to be a one-world power over the whole globe. And trust me, it'll be a whole lot easier to accomplish if the Christians are no longer on the earth. But the whole world's going to come together and there's going to be a one world power. And it's going to be made up of ten kingdoms that all come together and make a one world power. But in time, the Antichrist is going to take control over that. And for a period, he's going to be the ruler of the whole globe himself. But the Bible teaches that there are kingdoms and the Bible tells us how many there are going to be. But go to Daniel chapter 7. Let me just encourage you for a second here with what also Daniel saw. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 13... And 14. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Actually, all of these world kingdoms that have been in power over time throughout history are all just precursors to the time when God gives the world to Jesus. And he rules and reigns over the whole globe. That's going to be an awesome time because he's a good king. He's a good king. But I want you to keep in mind... There's a lot more to it than we have time to answer. One of the things is God is using these one-world kingdoms, if you will, to point to the day in which Jesus will be the one in charge over everything. But He also has His reasons and His, his purposes, and a lot, sometimes we have to just say, "I don't understand it," and leave that to the Lord. But to understand this much: they're all pointing to the day in which Jesus receives the kingdom. So did Jesus ever said that Nebuchadnezzar went to heaven or went to hell? Uh, actually, we don't know whether or not Nebuchadnezzar went to heaven or hell. We do know that there came a point where he realized God was God. We don't know whether or not that was salvation or not. But if you go back and study his history, God used him. And then God humbled him and had him live as an animal for seven years. And then after that, he came to his senses and he praised the Lord. And he said, there's only one God. But at the same time, just because he said there's only one God, even the demons believe and tremble, the Bible says in the book of James. So we don't know. We don't know. Now, before we move on to the next chapter, though, I really want to deal with something in chapter 21 of chapter 29. Look at verse 21. On that day, by the way, you remember those words? Whenever you see those words, on that day, it's pointing to what? The very, very end, especially the millennial kingdom. The end of the tribulation period, and the tribulation, sorry, the end of the tribulation period in the millennial kingdom. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them then they will know that I am the Lord. All right? Now, I want you to think about this for a second, because a lot of people have read that verse and thought, well, that's when uh, Ezekiel's unmuted. Remember, he's been made mute right now. He's not allowed to preach to the nation of Israel during the whole besieging of Jerusalem. When, according to what we've already seen in the prophecies, was he going to be unmuted? When will he be allowed to speak to the people of Israel again? you remember? Well, that's okay. Go ahead. At the end of the siege of Jerusalem in 586, go, go with me to Jeremiah, sorry, Ezekiel 33, not Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 33. And look at verses uh, 21 and 22. It says in the 12th year of our exile in the 10th month on the 5th day of the month a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said the city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. So that happened in 586, 585 BC. Actually, he's unmuted after the destruction of Jerusalem when someone runs from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon and finally makes it and tells him the news. He had been told from the time that the Nebuchadnezzar began besieging Jerusalem in 588 until the city was finally destroyed and word gets to him that's how long he was going to be mute. So we see in Jeremiah, sorry, I keep saying Jeremiah, Ezekiel 33, that it's in the 12th year of his exile, which is 586, 585, depending on how you do the math. 586, 585 BC is when he's unmuted. So can verse 21 be referring to when he's unmuted? When did that prophecy come? I already told you. Verse 17 through 21 came when? You got it. You said it. You had it. 570, 571, 570 B.C. This is 17 years after the previous prophecy, which was already 10 years into the captivity. So this unmuting is not the unmuting of him to be able to speak to Israel again. This is later on. He says, I'm going to open your lips to them at that time. Look at what it says. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them then they will know that I am the Lord. So, who's the them that he's going to open their lips to? The house of Israel. But when will the house of Israel really fully understand what he's saying? He's already going to be, had been unmuted prior to this prophecy. During the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. That's when they're going to finally understand. Remember, Israel's experienced a hardening right now in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then at the end of the tribulation period, all Israel that's left will be saved. Israel's going to at some point come to realize, hey, Jeremiah was right. Hey, Ezekiel was right. Hey, Isaiah was right. And Amos and Joel and Obadiah and all those who were prophesying about these last days, they were right. And this is what it's referring to, and at that time it will make sense. Let me just say this to you real quick. As you share the gospel with people, don't worry about whether or not they get it. That's not up to us. Our job is to just share the good news and share the gospel of salvation, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says we're to plant and we're to water. And how you water, by the way, is simply by living a life that is obedient to God and matches up with what you say. And if you plant the seed and water it, who determines whether or not it ever takes root and seed? God, the Bible's very clear on that. So many of us have stopped sharing because we think, well, I'm not good at it. I've shared with somebody and they don't respond. Hey, the Bible didn't say they would respond. We're just to preach it and deliver it and leave the results to him. But I want to deal with that word horn real quick. I wanted to do a whole study and show you all through the Bible where that word horn is used and what it means. And I realized it was way too big. It would have really derailed us. So I want you to if you're interested to do it on your own, you'll be blown away by how many times the word horn is in the Bible. It's referring to authority and strength. In other words, on that day, I'm going to cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel. There's one passage though I have to show you in my study that I found. We're not going to look at all the passages in Psalms that I found, but let me take you to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2 Hannah has been praying for a, a child. And she was barren for many, many years. And she promised God, if you give me a child, I'll give him to you. At this point, Hannah has been given the child and she gives him to the Lord. And listen to her prayer. And by the way, when she prays, it's obvious the Spirit of God's prophesying through her. This is not a normal lady's prayer. And Hannah prayed, chapter 2, 1 Samuel, chapter 2. Verse one. And Hannah prayed and said, "My heart exults in the Lord. My horn, my strength, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord; for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble, but the feeble, bind on strength." those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and then inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Listen closely. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Who is that referring to? That's Jesus. It's a prophecy about the coming king. On that day, I will raise up a horn among the people of Israel, it's Jesus. And he'll be the authority. He'll be over the whole globe. Israel will rule and reign over the nations, but it's because Jesus will be the king there. And then they'll know that I'm the Lord. Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. I'm going to do this as quickly as I can because we've got 15 minutes and one more chapter to finish. and we're, we're, I think we're going to be able to do it because scary as it is, we're ahead of the schedule from last night. Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Look at verses 18 through 24. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob, and have compassion on his dwellings. The city, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving, and the voices of those who celebrate, I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare approach of himself to approach me, declares the Lord, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. What does that last part say? In the latter days, you will understand this. Israel, you might not understand this now, but in the latter days, you will. What was Ezekiel told? When I raise up that horn that I prophesied back in 1 Samuel chapter 2 over Israel... Then your lips will be open to them. In other words, Ezekiel, you've been prophesying to the people of Israel, they haven't been listening. You've been prophesying to the nations, they haven't been listening. But when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, then the Jews will understand. Then the nations will understand. That's when I'm going to open your lips to them. And folks, that's an encouragement to me as a preacher. I'm just to be faithful to share what he's told me to share. When they get it, that's between them and God, and mainly God. And at the same time, how many times have I as a preacher shared something and people just didn't get it, but then a guest preacher came in, said the same thing, and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Parents, the same thing. You tell them, you tell them, but then someone else says it, and they get it. But you know what? Aren't you glad they got it? Why do we get so offended if we we weren't the ones they heard it from? It's pride. We want to be the ones. No, just leave that stuff to the Lord. Later on, we don't have time tonight, go back in yourself and read chapter 31 of Jeremiah. It's just an amazing chapter that really deals with uh, the future promises for Israel and how God is not done. Now, we're going to get to chapter 30, but I'm going to do something different tonight in the time we have. I'm not going to read to you the first 19 verses. I want you to read um, them on your own. I'm just going to point out to you one verse, verse 10 from chapter 30, verses 1 through 19. It says, thus says the Lord, I'll put an end to the wealth of Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of nations, shall be brought in to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. All right, so this is a continuation of the prophecy that we just heard in the previous chapter. But I want to point out how God very clearly and very specifically says, I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, king of Babylon and his people to destroy Egypt's wealth. Now a lot of prophecies aren't that specific sometimes he just says the people of the north sometimes he says I'm going to bring another nation up against you but at this time he clearly says I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon. Does anybody have any idea why he's so specific? There's lots of reasons so you don't have to worry about getting it right or wrong but there's one main one that I want hopefully you to see So when it happens, he gets the glory. Go to Isaiah. Go to Isaiah real quick. Go to Isaiah chapter 48. I want you to see this. There's a few places here in Isaiah that God says through the prophet Isaiah, pretty much what we just talked about, how God's going to give prophecies ahead of time so that he gets the glory. Isaiah 48, verses 3 through 5. He says, The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is iron as sinew, and and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, or my carved image and my metal image commanded them." In other words, one of the reasons why I have prophecy, and one of the reasons that's why I love prophecy, by the way, is because it reveals God. It's proof that God is God and that his word is true. The things that he says hundreds of years before they ever happened, when they literally come true and he literally said them, we can't help but say, God said it. God said prophesied that he ride in on a donkey and he rode in on a donkey. God prophesied that they cast lots for his clothing and then they cast lots for his clothing. He prophesied he be born in Bethlehem and he was born in Bethlehem and all the way through and when he prophesies I'm gonna use Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and then that's who would actually did it. Remember the prophecy came years before Babylon came in to attack them and I'm sure Egypt was thinking hey they're afraid of us. Remember how Egypt had left? Pharaoh Necho and his army had left? And then the Babylonians left because they heard the Egyptians were coming. And then the Egyptians went back and the Babylonians came back. The Egyptians thought the Babylonians are afraid of us. Well, guess what? Not as afraid as you think because God gave them power over them. Isaiah chapter 45, look at verses 20 through 23. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations, They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have have sworn... And from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. God's calling who and saying, who who told you this was going to happen? Who's he calling? Look at verse 20. The survivors of the nations. At the end of the tribulation period, he's going to gather them and say, who told you all this ahead of time? It was me. wasn't your faults gods it was me all along oh look at verses 24 and 25 though only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him in the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and show glory I love that he says here's your offer of salvation I told you ahead of time and I'm the one that carried it out here's your offer of salvation now in verse, uh, we're going to keep moving because of time. In verses, uh, chapter 30 in verses 20 through 26, I want to read it to you and we're going to wrap up in the time we have left and we can do this in the time we have left because I was able to do it in less time last night, although it was very fast. Now, we're back into uh, Ezekiel 30. Thank you for clarifying that. Ezekiel 30, verses 20 through 26. In the 11th year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, now now the prophecy jumps back, remember? one Prior to this, we're, in chapter, we're 17 years later. This is now uh, 11th year. In the first of the month, on the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and behold, it has not been bound up to heal it by binding it with a bandage, so that it may become strong to wield the sword. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and I'll break his arms, both the strong arm and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall from his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries, and I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break the arms of Pharaoh, and he will groan before him like a man mortally wounded. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall." Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he stretches that out against the land of Egypt, and I'll scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, keep in mind, this prophecy is dated about 587, right, B.C. What's happening right now in 587 B.C. back in Jerusalem I'm sorry? Yeah, Babylon's attacking Jerusalem right now. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of Babylon attacking Jerusalem, God's given a prophecy to Ezekiel in Babylon about Egypt. Now most of us would say, what's God doing talking to Ezekiel in Babylon about a future thing going to happen in Egypt when Jerusalem's under attack right now by Nebuchadnezzar? Don't you think God should be over there? Well, first off, don't lose sight of this. He can multitask. But at the same time, also don't forget, we're not going to turn there, but in Ezekiel chapter 4, remember when Ezekiel was told to build the little diorama of what was going to happen to Jerusalem, and he took the brick and he put the name of Jerusalem on it, and then he put the dirt around it and the siege walls, and then he was to lie down and put an iron griddle between him and the city? In other words, when this happens, and you try to pray to me, it won't be there. We'll be listening. And remember, Ezekiel has also been told, I'm going to strike you mute. You can't even talk to the people of Jerusalem during the whole siege. Remember? The Iron Wall. So they could even cry out to Ezekiel, even in Babylon, and say, what's the Lord say? Can't tell you. But I'm writing down prophecies for the Gentile nations right now. But we see here, what does it mean when he says, that God has already broken one arm of Pharaoh, but he'll also break his other arm. Now, this prophecy is in 587 BC. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't come until 568, 567, 20 years later than this, after this prophecy is when Nebuchadnezzar comes and attacks Egypt. But in 587, God said to Ezekiel, I've already broken one of the arms of Pharaoh, but he's not going to break... The other arm or both the arms until 20 years later. Does anybody have any idea what that means? History helps us here, but we have it also in the Bible. Go to 2 Kings chapter 24. You remember Pharaoh Nico? Remember all the nasty stuff he was doing to Israel? How he killed Josiah, gathered a tribute. Go to 2 Kings, that was in 2 Kings 23. Go to 2 Kings 24. And look at verses 1 through 7. It says in his days Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him and the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites. By the way uh, who had put Jehoiakim in power? Pharaoh, Nico, had put him in power. But Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar comes now and takes control. And Jehoiakim uh, rebels against him, and so the Lord sent Chaldeans, bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites, bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out again out of his land. For the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So during this time, remember Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are besieging Jerusalem over three different waves, 605, 597, 588. During these times, Babylon goes down. And takes away the power of Egypt. It doesn't destroy them. They're still a nation. They're still there. But he crippled them to the point that they couldn't go out and fight against anybody anymore. And what did the prophecy say back in Ezekiel chapter 30? He said, I've already broken the arm of the king of Egypt. So that he can't swing a sword anymore. That happened when in chapter 24. When Nebuchadnezzar had already broken one of his arms. But now this king Pharaoh Hophra... He's going to come, and he's going to break both his arms. I've crippled him, so he can't come out and fight and hold the sword anymore, but I'm going to come and break both arms, and he's going to be dest- destroyed as a nation. Now, we're going to close tonight in the last minute we have, and I'm going to ask you a question. Why, then, would God judge Pharaoh Hophra for the things that Pharaoh Nico did? And the things that the nation of Egypt did way back in their history in putting Israel as slaves. The <laughs> Good question, but and, and sins of the father passed on? Not really, because as you know, the Bible says that there came a point where God said, that the, uh, it used to be said that the father of Eden sour grapes when the children's cedar set on edge, but everyone will be judged for his own sin. He was just as yes, go back to chapter 29. But again, look, there was something in chapter 29 that I skipped over on purpose so we can close with it. Look at verse 2 and 3, and then verse 8 and 9. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams, that says, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. Oh, look at uh, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll bring a sword upon you and cut off from you man and beast and the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste, then they will know that I am the Lord, because you said, the Nile is mine, and I made it. See, the Pharaoh was very proud of their agricultural ability. What they had done is they had built all these little aqueducts and different ways that they could fertilize the land. Whenever the Nile flooded, it would flow out. And since they had dug all those little ditches to fertilize all that land, Pharaoh said, look what I did. I made this. God said, you didn't make that river. Just keep in mind, does, do we get caught up sometimes in a judgment of our nation? Are there consequences for us for being in a nation? Yes. Daniel did. Jeremiah did. Ezekiel did. When God judged the nation of Israel and judged the nations, there are people that were caught up in it as well. But don't ever think for a second that nobody is individually innocent. is not getting it just because of all that Egypt did in the past. is getting it because... Offer is guilty before God as well. I wrote this as my last note on my page. Are your sins covered? Are they washed? I hope they are. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.